Church, what a joy. Um, God is good and at work. Pray that your heart is ready uh, to heed his word and hear it, receive it, put it to work. And uh, so we continue um, in this wonderful letter that God has given us. Um, thankful for his mighty work in us. We're spending quality time in this important part of chapter 4 of 1 John. Just a few weeks ago, we looked at probably the most famous verses to come out of this letter, 1 John 4, 7 and 8, which says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. We who are saved by God, we who are redeemed by Christ, we who, because of that, belong to God, Scripture is clear to say that we are eternally loved by Him. Loved before time, before we were created. His love was set out for us. Scripture says that we're loved by Him unconditionally. God has not just proclaimed his love for us but he has shown it to shown it to us in the most amazing and significant way through the life and death and resurrection of God the Son Jesus Christ what this means is that the redeemed Christian is so loved by God that we are full and and complete in him lacking nothing good having gained everything we need in Christ. And so the Apostle John is clear to make the additional point that those who do not know God, those who remain opposed to Him, they don't know true love because God is love. All they have is a counterfeit, is a man-made version. Right? And so, with that under our feet, we continue. What comes next is verse 9 and 10. And next Sunday begins Holy Week, as I said earlier. A week we celebrate and remember the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That final week of his life before the cross and then his resurrection. Beginning on Palm Sunday, next Sunday. And I want to spend our time over those three services. Palm Sunday, Good Friday, and Resurrection Sunday. Really building out of verse 9 and 10. Look at that with me quickly, and then we'll move on to our verses today in 11 and 12. 1 John 4, 9 and 10. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world, so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. I really look forward to that time, that most special time of our year, to be together as a church. I want to encourage you to be thinking about who God has put in your life that needs to hear the gospel clearly, that you would invite them on one of those services, Palm Sunday, Good Friday evening, or Resurrection Sunday morning. Today I want to focus on verse 11 and 12. And John's called uniquely and specifically on us who are redeemed to love one another. God, who is love, has shown His love in Christ, life, death, and resurrection, and now He's called us to love others. 
Last week, we looked at love for others outside the church, right? And we're also to love one another, those who are, who are the church, both here and far. And so that's our focus today. Look with me at verse 11 and 12. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. If you remember in verse 7, I read it just a moment ago, He said, Beloved, let us love one another. So twice He said that. I'm actually going to show you how He says it a third time in a moment. But before we begin to dig into the specifics of how we love one another, I want to pause and really make sure that what's underneath us is a real understanding of the significance of one another. One another is one of the many references made for the body of Christ in the New Testament. It is those of us who are redeemed by God, saved by Christ, and now belong to God's eternal family. Over 60 times in the New Testament, the phrase one another is used. The living God elected in His grace to save His chosen people into something very special, into a family. A family unlike any other family. In our unity as the family of God, He has given us a very special relationship with one another. He wants us to value it dearly, to protect it, to invest into it, cultivate it. One of the clearest ways we understand the depth of what one another really means is for us to consider Paul's words in his letter to the Romans, chapter 12, verse 4 and 5. He says, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. We're members of one another. The imagery Paul uses here for the church is that of a human body, and each member of that body is precious and important. It's an important part of its function, of its growth. We who are saved by Christ are ordained by God to have a special place in the body of Christ, to be members of one another. If you remember, Paul speaks of our unity, our one another, in the form of togetherness in in his letter to the Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2, 19 through 22, he says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together 
into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The imagery Paul uses here for the church is different than what he used with the Romans, that of a body. Here it's of a structure, a building, more specifically a holy temple. The emphasis he's making is that we who are true believers in Christ are mortared together with Christ, the architect, as he builds his church. Church, we need to see the holy, perfect, and very special assignment this is for us who belong to Christ's church. It needs to break in and break down the ways that you are are guilty of being separated, of being too much on your own, of, of remaining really in a state where maybe you attend the church and maybe you're a part of it in certain ways, but in other ways you're still very alienated. That, that needs to change if we're going to honor God and what it really means to, to be one another. The Apostle Peter had much to say. He said it this way in 1 Peter 2.5. You yourselves are like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So Peter's reference is to us as living stones, purposefully, strategically placed by the Holy God into a spiritual house. We are chosen, redeemed, shaped for our position, for the structure of God. Right? And and if you're feeling like, but who am I? Well, I would... I would say that's a right view to have of yourself. Because we don't boast in ourselves. We, we don't bring ourselves. We, we come humbly in Christ. But what Christ does to us and for us is to redeem, is to heal, is to purpose us. And so I love the imagery when considering Peter's words here that that we are really like broken glass. Different colors and shapes, different experiences. But not whole in and of ourselves. Desperate for Christ to be complete. And then by God's holy hand, put together with other pieces of broken glass who have been redeemed in Christ to make the most beautiful mosaic That is the holy house of God. That is who we are, church. I want you to realize that this work of God and the unity of His church, His people, is the most impressive, it's the most magnificent, it's the most exciting thing that your life is a part of. Do you realize that? It is bigger than what your company is doing. It is bigger than what your sports team is doing. It is bigger than what your kids are accomplishing or overcoming. Even if that's on a regional or national stage. It is the work of the Holy God to build His eternal, united kingdom. And if you are saved in Christ, you are an important part of that. And you have a role to play. A responsibility to it. To understand what it is to 
to be one another. That you would not treat church as something you tap into to help yourself, but it's a very individual, it's a very selfish, maybe in the way you think about that, but know that you are a part of something. I've always said when contemplating, do I go to church today or not? For those of you who still wrestle with that, many of you are beyond that. Of course I'm going to go to church, unless I'm deathly ill or far away. Of course, nothing else would be so important to take me away from the gathering of the saints. But for those of you who still wrestle with considering, oh, maybe I'll just stay home or kick my feet up and watch the race or hang with the kids or get some of the stuff done or stay out late on a Saturday night so I'll sleep in. I feel like I'm doing okay in my face, so I'll be all right. Do you realize that that is a selfish way to think about the church? Because all you're thinking about is yourself. No, you are a part of something. In your consideration of the priority to be part of the local church, you need to be recognizing it's not just what you get out of it, it's what you bring to it. And so it's not just, you know, oh, well, I don't really serve an important function in the church. Well, it's not that even. It's your voice in the room. It's your hug walking by. It's, it's your smile for your brother or sister. It's your encouragement. It's your prayer. It is your service. It's all these things. It's your presence. It's your participation. Notice another emphasis that we have here from Paul in Ephesians 2, in that we are, we are together. We're joined together in verse 21. We're being built together in verse 22. Beloved, we must treasure the unity we have in the church, for it is unlike any other unity we will know in this life, greater and truer than any other unity that we can manufacture on our own. We are a united force a body of believers, we belong to one another. The one thing that comes close to this is the unity that God has ordained for a man and a woman who become husband and wife, who were two become one. Separate individuals, married. And it's a mystery, and it's magnificent. God's design to make two into one in marriage is like nothing else. And it points to the union we, the redeemed, have in Christ. We, the bride, have with our holy husband Christ. Christ and his bride. Our marriages even point to that testimony of the gospel. It's their greatest purpose as we read in Ephesians 5. United together into Christ. Brother, sister, you have to stop seeing your faith journey or your God-assigned days on earth as an individual thing. We are united as one in Christ. We are in each other's lives. Whether we like it or not, this is our reality, and it should be our cherished practice. Listen to the heart of Jesus as he prays to the Father. John 17. 9 through 12, he says, I'm praying for them. And not only praying for, I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you've given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I'm glorified in them. 
Now I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture may be fulfilled. Did you hear it? He's pleading that, that we would be one as Christ and the Spirit and the Father are one. Only in Christ are we truly empowered to know unity like this. Gospel-driven, God-honoring, patient, humble, loving unity of one another. You cannot know this outside of Christ. Your selfishness is too strong. Your flesh, too potent. In Christ, church, we are together in our purpose. Our purpose as a church is to glorify God through lives that are being transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. We must be united in that purpose. That's our purpose, not just mine. In Christ, we are together in doctrine. We will only practice one another well if God's Word is what guides that and instructs it and shapes it and holds it accountable. So we don't do just what we feel or what we think is best. We go to the Word to direct and to shape and lead us. Our high goal as a church is to rightly divide God's holy word and to teach it faithfully so that we together would see and stand on solid biblical doctrine, not traditions of the church, not preferences of the body, that we would honor God and all that He's put before us to be and to do. This is a major part of our unity and therefore what God is doing through the local church. We're united together to reveal the love of God to a world that does not know His love. John has made this clear. We do that, we reveal that love by loving one another really well. So this is John's point in verse 12. And so hear it with me in verse 11 and 12. Beloved, if if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God if we love one another. God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. If God has so loved us before time and is revealing that love through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, then we who belong to Him are empowered to, are commanded to, love one another. This is a really important part of our testimony Christian, it's a really important part of your days that God gives you here on earth after He has saved you. So the Christian who says, yeah, we're doing okay without the local church, is not only not understanding God's Word, but they're making a war with it in a way that's not okay. Because how do you practice the one another's? And really walk together and know each other and be accountable to each other. We must have this and do this. And so therefore, we turn to this important foundational understanding about the one another's, and that is that they're not recommendations that we might consider. No, no, no. They are commands of God on His people who are redeemed. Commands from our general from our Master, 
Jesus says this clearly in John 15, 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And so this is John's emphasis in his words in our passage. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. John is driving this point. If you know God, then love should be overflowing from that relationship onto your other relationships, especially with those who are in the church. Three times John drives this home in this very chapter. 1 John 4, 7, Beloved, let us love one another. Is that enough? No, he circles back here in verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And we'll see again later in verse 21. And this commandment we have from him. In case you're not listening, in case you've made excuses in the first couple times I've brought this up. Oh, and by the way, I brought it up back in chapter 3. Let me state it. Let me restate it. The Lord has commanded us, whoever whoever loves God must also love his brother. John's charge to us is very real. We are to love one another. Christian, do you hear your master's charge for your life, for your days? His command, his will for your testimony. Loving one another is not something we might consider. It's not something we might do only when we feel like it. It is the way we are supposed to act, to breathe, to live this saved life in Christ that God has blessed us with and called us to. So when we're tempted to say, yeah, but, it's not an option to refuse to love one another. It is what a life devoted to Christ, satisfied in Christ, does. We who are His, we who are redeemed by God, will love our blood-bought family members, both near and far. We will do this faithfully because our lives are His. And He's called us to it. We will do this because He first loved us. And that leads us to the how. How? How do I do that? How do I love one another? And the answer quickly is God. God is how. Our prioritized love for God, His eternal love for us, empowers our love for one another. Consider how we can think about this in the great commandment. Jesus says in Matthew 22, 37-40, Jesus replied, You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all of your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the other commandments and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. So first and foremost, we are to love God more than anything or anyone else. We can't talk about how I'm going to love one another or love my neighbor well if I'm not first really addressing my love for God, my love with God. First and foremost, we honor God first and and most because it honors Him rightly. To not love God more than anything else is to be an idolater. Think about that. When we think of idolatry, sometimes we wrongly think of 
like a tribal person who's bowing before carved stone. That's idolatry. We think of like Indiana Jones. And that is idolatry. But understand really clearly, idolatry is way closer to home than you realize. It is anyone who loves or worships anything, prioritizes anything over God. You're idolater. So we start there. It is a right order of our lives to love and cherish God more than anything else. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind. What does all mean here? Does it mean sometimes? Does it mean part way? Does it mean that I love him when I feel like it? Does it mean that I love him with some of my heart and I reserve other parts of my heart for someone else? No, all. Be overwhelmed at the instruction in the great commandment for all. All the time, all the way, even when my flesh doesn't feel like it, with my whole heart. So I ask you again, is God truly your first and your greatest love? This is an important question. Because in 20 plus years of pastoral ministry, I've seen the biggest thing to take people away from a faithful pursuit and walk and journey with Christ is that their greatest love gets moved on to somebody else. Someone comes into their life, a new relationship, maybe a love relationship, or a child. Those two are the biggies, typically. Please understand, if we're going to honor the great commandment, your spouse, your child, cannot be your greatest love. They must be a distant second if God has all of your love. To love God with all and with all of your first is to then love your spouse and your child rightly. So you don't let the world's agenda shape your thinking there. We're guilty sometimes of, of letting that worldly tradition and how people talk about love and affection for spouse or family, and, and it starts to be like Bible to us, and it, it should not be. We love them deeply, sacrificially. But that will only happen if we love God first and foremost. That's the point I want to get at. How do I love one another well? By loving God first and foremost. More than anything else. Including your wonderful spouse, your beloved kids. Because if you love them first then all you have to give them is your best love that you come up with. Whereas when you love God rightly, first and foremost, above all, 
then the overflow, that full cup that's satisfied in him, you don't need someone else to complete you. That overflow of your love in God spills down then to your love for your spouse and your kids. And his love at work in you is the kind of love you want to have for them. Not what you come up with when God is somewhere else on the list. Only then will I have his selfless love abundantly at work in those around me. We are able to love each other way better than if we try to just do it out of our own. I can't tell you how game-changing this is and, and how shaping it is to how we do our lives, right? And so when I begin to really understand that, then, then um, I want to champion that my wife is more madly and greatly in love with someone other than me. I'm, I'm cheering her on to be more deeply in love with God than me. Because as I understand Scripture, she will then love me and everyone else rightly. Same for my children, right? And so, so not only am I cheering for that, I'm trying to make time. At how is she abiding in the Lord and growing in the Lord and walking with sisters in the Lord to be accountable? And how is that happening well where Christ is King and her, her deep love her first love. If God is first and you are seeking to obey Him, then your love for everyone else will be accurately placed. And you won't do anything in those relationships that jeopardize your prioritized love for God. Right? So, so that's where like the couple that's kind of fallen for each other it isn't then considering crossing moral boundaries in the name of love because there's a greater love for God. And so I don't sell out. I honor God. I love Him first. And that shapes then how I love someone else. When we commit our greatest love to God, He reveals in how to best love those around us. And only then does the sacrificial love of God go to work in and through us. We will not be sacrificial in our love if we do not first know, abide in, bathe in the sacrificial love of God. You and I don't do sacrificial love on our own. We're too selfish in our flesh. So, let me remind us of a few things I've highlighted along the way. Remember I told you this letter is repetitive, largely because John wants to drive home some things that we need to not hear, be moved by, and then move on. But that these would be real foundational things. And so I want to even remind you of a couple ways I've spoken of this already in our series, and in considering how we love one another. Right. So if, if some of this is coming to memory for some of you, then then use it as a test. Hey, what did I do with it the last time I heard it? Am I putting it to work? And is this a sanctifying, growing thing in me? How we love one another and the overflow of God's love in us. Paul says it this way in Romans 12.10. Love one another 
with brotherly affection outdo one another in showing honor. So this is not just love one another with deeds. It's saying have feelings for each other. Brotherly affection is the key there. The idea is that your heart, your heart would leap a little for those who are around you, your brothers and sisters in Christ, your blood-bought family, as we like to refer to each other here at Disciples. It, it leaps for them, watch this, because of who they are in Christ, not because of their performance. We don't evaluate how much we love each other on each other's performance. That's fleshly, counterfeit love. I love them because God's loved me. Because Christ is in them. The, the word love here in this text is tender affection. Family affection. The verse is calling for Christians to have tender affection for one another with family love. A command for how we are to relate to each other in the body. To feel an affection, a tender affection for one another. And before we think about the implications of this, a, a, a couple other texts to, to remind you of. 1 Peter 1.22 Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. So Christian, when, you, when you're getting ready for a gathering of the saints, whether in a home or here on campus, are you, are you praying and preparing and reading and abiding in God that has your cup so full in the love of God that you are showing up ready to love your brothers and sisters from the heart? I'm not just strolling in to receive and then move along with my day and my plans. No, I'm showing up with a mission, with a purpose. I got some love to give to these people. And it's from the heart. It's not just an obligation because I'm a member of the church. It's something earnest, something that has fervor. It's real family affection, respect, and honor. In Philippians 1.8, Paul says to the church, For God is my witness, how I long for you with how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus, with the love of God, the affection. That word affection there in the Greek is intestines. My inner organs, right? So some of us have kind of reserved that like stupid gut love for only like romantic things. Uh, wrong. It's to be for each other, for the body, for the family. We're to have that gut love. I love you that much. That's God's love at work in me. I'm homesick for you. I miss you. This is the way we see the apostles speaking of each other as they're traveling, doing ministry, and apart. When this is not happening among the brethren, there's a fundamental problem. And can I just say, if already in the sermon you're starting to think about how you feel like others are not loving you that way, you're missing it. When your mind goes there, you're thinking selfishly. 
The love of God tips your cup where all you want to do is share. I want to love you. I have what I need in Christ. I'm not looking for you to perform and do church or life the way I like it. I'm not evaluating that way. No, no. God's love in me is readying me to love you deeply, truly. When you think of another blood-bought brother or sister in our church or maybe in another, and you don't feel genuine sacrificial love for them, I love you to say that means something's critically broken in the love you know and are abiding in in God. It means repentance is needed. It means gospel reorientation to grip the gospel, to be satisfied in Jesus. That's needed. You need to invite brothers and sisters and go to the Word to reorient you to be satisfied in Him. It means your flesh is leading the way you're thinking and feeling. And you need to kick it out of the driver's seat. The revealed will of God, according to His Word for His children, His blood-bought children, is not just to do good things or say nice things in passing by. It's not enough to just pray for each other, speak decent to each other. We should do those things. Don't hear me say it. Those are critical, crucial. But God's will for us, Christ's work in us, means a love for each other with brotherly affection. That we will open our hearts wide to each other. We will feel for each other a kind of tender affection and longing that would naturally be expressed with a holy kiss of love. Another way Scripture speaks of how we are to love one another in five different times and letters in the New Testament, Christians are told to greet one another with a holy kiss. 2 Corinthians 13.12 1 Peter 5.14 Greet one another with the kiss of love. 1 Thessalonians 5.26 Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. 1 Corinthians 16.20 All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Romans 16.16 16, Greet one another with a holy kiss. And so that raises the question whether our cultural norm of a handshake carries what Christ means for us to really love one another. It's not culturally normal for two grown adults to kiss in our modern day. There are some families, some friends, where that happens. Adults will kiss. Like some of you, as I read those verses a moment ago, you might think, well, yeah, that happens in my family. Some of you are like, that happens nowhere. I don't ever see that. This is weird. You know where I see this happen? In Christ's family? Grown, mature, macho men, brothers in my Christian motorcycle club will get off their bikes and walk over. Brothers, and kiss each other on the lips. Not because they're weird, but because they truly love each other and are not letting any of the secular stuff get in the way of what it means to be blood-bought in Christ together. Now again, for some of you, as you're digesting, you're like, dude, that's so uncomfortable. And I think it's uncomfortable to us because we 
allow culture and our flesh to sexualize it. And so it feels out of place. But it shouldn't be that way. Because the influence of God's sacrificial love in us and His Word, clearly not once, but many times, calls for a holy kiss of love. When done right, it's not sinful and it's not sexualized in the ways the flesh longs to profane it. The word profane means to take what is sacred and make it common. So, hear me clearly. I'm not saying this is the day where Pastor Stone the Satan says we all got to start kissing each other. <laughs> but it's very important that you really wrestle with the point. That is that there is a love for one another in the family of God that I would say biblically is bigger, stronger, deeper, and more important than your blood family. And that what that then equals, the love of God at work in us, is a true, deep, and full affection and honoring of each other. In the professional world, do you hug when you greet a regional boss? No. Do you kiss your doctor on the cheek when you go in for a checkup? Luis probably does. That's just who she is. Love you, sis. Glad you're here. Do you hug and kiss your family members? Yeah. Your family. God is saying, this, look around, is family. And I think when we read Scripture rightly, he, he says that this family is more important than the temporal purpose of your blood family. This, this family, the redeemed in this room, is eternal family. Therefore, we have a deep love, the love of God overflowing for each other. And in honoring of each other. Again, I'm not saying you need to start greeting each other with a holy kiss. Some of us do this with some of us. But it's not for everyone. It's not for all the time. So again, hear me? Don't be the weird guy that's trying to run around here and kiss everyone. <laughs> but what needs to happen is you need to be getting to know your brothers and sisters you need to be praying for them. You need to be fighting for them. You need to be learning to love them deeply and truly in the power of Christ. You need to be the guy or the gal that loves one another really well loves genuinely loves deeply loves sacrificially don't be content to just come and keep to yourself okay I'm glad some of you are getting here more faithfully maybe than you have in the past can I say get here a little earlier
all right? And stop engraving your name on your seat, trying to hold it down. Get up and go shake a hand and go give a hug and go get to know some brothers and sisters and pray for them. Ask how you can be praying for them. And then build on that to break bread together and serve one another and really look to love one another in truth and God's word. Let's model this for each other. Let's model this for our children. Some of you are like, hey, we didn't, we didn't do any of that in my family. That's so foreign to me. I get it. There's a lot of you that that's very foreign. But you are new in Christ. Right? And so let's model that. Jennifer and I are trying to do that with our kids. To model for them what that looks like. Right? You shake the hand of a new person, a stranger. But we hug and kiss family. Because that's who we are. Right? My oldest son, Noah, picked up on that, I think, the most. He's out ahead of the others. But he's known in the different circles he runs in as a hugger. Some of you would say, well, that's because you're a hugger. And there's probably some truth to that. But I want us all to climb into, what does it look like to really love each other? And to not be content with something that's more stale or superficial. And I love well some of you that don't like to hug by not hugging you. Right? So there's that too. You know, I mean, there's some of those layers there. And we just, it's not about me. It's about really loving you. Caring for you. And so many of you are probably still wrestling. What do, I, what do I do if I don't feel this kind of deep affection towards a brother or sister in Christ? You're probably thinking of some specific names or faces that you've encountered along the way. You're hearing the commandment of Jesus reiterated again and again that we are to love one another, to open your heart wide to them and feel a longing for them. But you can think of several people who you don't feel that way about. And maybe they've hurt you. And maybe they've let you down. Maybe they haven't lived up to your expectations for them. But you're saying this morning, I pray you are, I hear you, Lord, and I submit to the righteousness of your command. But if it wouldn't be honest with him, I just don't feel this kind of affection for him or her. Or some of you are saying, my battle is I've never known family who loved each other this way. We hardly ever even said I love you to each other. But again, you're saying, I want to yield to you, Lord. You have a right calling me to do this. So I want to embrace that. But you're kind of just going, but how, how do I overcome that? And if this is you, I just want to remind you of three things that I try to give you guys. And I think this is important. It's good for all of us. Number one, are you praying for the Spirit's power to go to work? Not just standing quietly, but you're going to prayer. Pray earnestly that God, the Holy Spirit, would move on your heart. For He is able to work a miracle that neither you or I can manufacture on our own. For a heart to be changed towards another adopted brother or sister in Christ. That the Holy Spirit would genuinely stir the love of God in you for real affections for them. That has nothing to do with their performance or lack thereof. So pray. Number two, focus on their heavenly identity of your sibling. That's your brother or sister in Christ. And this is important that you keep your eyes focused on their heavenly identity and not the earthly frustration that plagues you in this relationship. See, in our flesh, we tend to over-focus on the, almost exclusively, 
on the ways we've been disappointed or let down. And so we hold them in contempt by that. But that's going to defeat you every time, and it's definitely not going to set you with a posture to love them sacrificially in Christ. I love how Pastor John Piper says this. There's a greater reality to think about and focus on, but you must make an effort. Focus on the reality of God's fatherhood. When you think about a Christian that is hard to feel affection for, say, God is her father. God is his father. When you see her, her, think, God is her father. And then say, God is my father. And we have the same father. Jesus is her Savior and my Savior. The same blood that bought her bought me. The same Holy Spirit that indwells her indwells me. The same love flows from God towards her that flows towards me. She is my sister. He is my brother. And we will live forever in the same family. We will live forever together in joy and ecstasy in the presence of the Father in the new earth. We have to preach these things to ourselves. Jesus says you will know truth and the truth will set you free. Go to his word. Lean into a brother or sister to help you reorient. Go to the Lord in prayer. So that there's a freedom that you find, a power that you find in Christ, in the work of the Spirit, to free you from your defective and selfish emotions. Don't keep feeding defective emotions with earthly thoughts about how they wronged you or let you down. God knows the details of those things and He'll take care of that. He'll settle that account. You need to set your minds on the great realities that make you and all of your blood-bought family one in Christ. And then third, I would just say, remember that Christian love is a growing thing. It's not an all-or-nothing thing. It's a growing thing. 2 Thessalonians 1.3, Paul commands the, the Christians like this. He commends them like this. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as it is right. Because your faith is growing abundantly. And the love of everyone of you for one another is increasing. Love is a growing thing. You may have some of it and be a real Christian. Not have all of it, but God is at work in you. As you abide in Him, He will produce the fruit of the Spirit in you. You may feel some affection towards a fellow believer, but then wrestle with negative emotions. That doesn't mean you're not a Christian. It means you're at war with your flesh. And you are trying to be led by the Spirit. And so I would say to you, keep on, weary soldier. And know that God will refine you as you press into Him. Put to work His power to forgive and not hold grudges. You realize, like, if your hope is to love them more, but you haven't even forgiven them yet, you can't put love on the table, on that table. Why? Because it's full of all your grudge, full resentfulness towards them. You need to forgive as you've been commanded to forgive. Now the table's cleared to put some love on it and go to work. Some of you have a testimony of like, 
I'm still not ready to do church the way God calls us to do it because of the things that have happened in the past. Some of you are too long on that path. It's time to stop everything else and do work on that and to confess it as sin and repent of it. That's not me telling you that. It's the Lord's Word again and again and again. Seek each other out for reconciliation. It's okay to say, ouch. Seek the Lord. Fight for unity. Paul prays this very way. 1 Thessalonians 3.12 And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. Church, the evidence of our redemption, our transformation in Christ is our love. The love of God will be at work in and through His people. This is a great assurance. Only in God do you know true love. Only out of the overflow of God does the church love one another. See, the source of love is God. And it's made manifest to us in Christ that we are to know it and have it and share it. Another great instruction of how we are to love one another is in Jesus' words in John 13, 34. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another how? Just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. Are you that Christian that feels a little bit on a pedestal? Like, hey, this person continues to really flounder. How, how are you and I not the people that continue to flounder in the presence of the Holy Christ? And yet He loved us so sacrificially and so fully. Just as He says, just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. He's, I've given you a pattern for love. Just a few moments before these words, Jesus washed the disciples' feet and then told them in John 13, 14-15, If I then, your Lord, your teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. He's saying, church, this is what it looks like to love one another just as I have loved you. Remember Paul's words to the Philippians in chapter 2, 5-8. through eight, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus has loved us. He got low in sacrificial love, not just in the incarnation of taking on flesh, but serving us. Not just with a towel and a bucket of water to clean our filthy feet, but to hang on a murderer's cross to save us. Therefore, we who belong to Him, we who know the love of God, we too are empowered by Him to get low in sacrificial love for one another. We don't pull rank.
1 John 3, back to chapter 3, 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Maybe we could even begin to pray more radically. Not just to pray for our safety and prosperity and witness success and mission success, discipleship success. But maybe that we would begin to pray that God would give us the opportunity to love one another so much that the testimony of this church sooner than later and maybe more often than not is that we're dying for each other. And maybe in that deeper aim, we don't keep being content by just aiming for the curb and the little things. But there's a whole very revolutionary thing that begins to happen in us who are satisfied in Christ. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. The Lord's command is that we love each other as He's loved us. And so hear me clearly, church, to love you well in truth if you are refusing to abide in God to the degree that you are growing in your practice of sacrificial love for one another, you are in sin. You are in sin when you choose selfishness and bitterness and grudges instead of love that forgives and heals and sacrificially goes low for each other. If you choose laziness instead of love, if you choose pride instead of love, if you choose resentment instead of love, you are in sin. If this is you, confess that sin and turn from it. Repent. Take steps in the power of God to abide and bathe in the love of God and and move what He's done in us to forgive others, to love others sacrificially the way He's loved us. Church, Jesus is our Lord. He has the authority to command us to this with the days He gives us. In closing, look with me at how our love for one another shines bright into a dark world in verse 12. He says, No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. Check that out. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. Who's the us? It's the church. It's the redeemed. So the only way a lost world who does not know God can see, can witness the love of God is in our daily lives in how we love one another. Jesus said, John 13, 35, By this all people will know that you are my disciples. By what? If you have love for one another. So what does that mean? It means you can attend every Sunday, 52 times a year. Give 25% of your income to the work of the church and the kingdom in disciple making. Serve five times a week in the church, in the community. 
But the Bible says if you are not identified with God first and foremost by your love for one another, we have a problem. Jesus said, Matthew 5, 14-16, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So then, what this means is that we do not, when we do not practice love for one another, it's like turning the light off. We might be busy doing all the things of God in every other way. You might be pretty impressed with yourself in all the things you're doing that are righteous and good, but you're lacking in love for one another. That's a problem. They will know we are His by our love for one another. They will. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. Disciples Church, we must do business with us today. We must stop making excuses. We must address where our flesh is in charge and make war with it. Take an axe to its root. To abide in Christ. To invite others in to help us be reoriented to gospel truth. To help us do this. The entire purpose of our daily existence, this side of heaven, after salvation, is to magnify His name. To testify what He's done. And God says we do this in a very primary way, by our love for one another. This is God's love at work in God's people. Is it at work in you, Christian? I pray it is. And growingly so, by His grace and for His glory. Amen? Pray with me. Lord, You are a good God, worthy to be praised, worthy to be obeyed and trusted. Our flesh wants to protect itself. It wants to carve out its own way. But we don't, we're not slaves to the flesh anymore. We're slaves to Christ. And so, Lord, do Your work. Draw our minds and our hearts to your words, your promises, your truths in Scripture. We, we would go to prayer. We would go to your word. We would invite others in to help us be accountable to these things. And so that sanctification would happen. Growing testimony of love for one another. Do that work among us. Don't harden us. Free us up to love each other so well that we outdo each other in showing honor that we're ready truly to die for each other. For some, help them to reorient their first love. It all starts there. To say that they're with you and love you, but they don't love you first, they don't love you greatest. Do that work first to reorient their love order. And then in the overflow of your love at work in us, God, do your work. Go to work. 
Oh, how we love you. Blessed assurance we have in your promises, for you cannot lie. Blessed assurance we have in the life, death, and resurrection, for it is finished. In Jesus' name we pray.